Thank you, Barbara. We are continuing exploring the, this wonderful theme of God's mission plan as it's revealed throughout Scripture and using uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, at this stage of our series. And this week it's a great passage to, uh, as I'll explain a little bit later, look at the engine that drives the mission of God and look under the bonnet a little bit. But it's a great passage, and I need to be fairly disciplined and not trying to pause too much because there's so much that uh, uh, warrants much more attention than I can give it this morning. Paul starts off, and it's good to be reminded that he actually is literally in prison himself. Um, He's a a prisoner um, under Roman authority. We don't know exactly where, um, whether it's in uh, Caesarea or whether it's in Rome. Um, but Paul is actually living the reality of what it means to be a prisoner for the Lord. But he also affirms his undying loyalty to uh, Jesus. And he he reached a stage in Ephesians now where he's not arguing something that's controversial. He knows he has the, the agreement of those that he's writing to. But he wants to really encourage them and to exhort them, to beg you to live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. This word worthy is one that uh, is quite a delightful term. Axios is the term that it uses, and it conveys a sense of of balance. Um, To be worthy is where there is a correspondence between weight or value. So if you picture it as a pair of scales... And to be worthy is when those two are in the right balance between them. And here, if we think about it, the scales, the two things that Paul wants to be kept in balance is a calling that we have and the way that we live out that calling. Um, So the calling that we might identify is in our baptism. We are called to be the children of God. We're called to be family. We're called to live out that in our lives, to be a light in the darkness. So Paul says, this isn't just something that we hear and nod to. We need to actually live it out. That is what a life worthy of our calling would look like. So let's explore this passage a little bit further. Now, I have to confess Um, When I did a Google search last night for looking under the bonnet or looking under the hood, almost every picture came up was of males. Um, Either, I have to say, males who are teenagers looking under the hood and finding great fascination or males of a certain age, usually over about 80, looking over under the hood. One of the intriguing things I noticed, I have no idea what to make of this, But of the males who look under the hood, they seem to have a problem keeping their pants up Um, because a good number of them actually were having those pants slipping down. I will not push that one any further. Uh, Other than to say, this is an opportunity for us this morning to look under the hood of the mission of God and to have a look at the, the engine that drives this mission. And what do we see? First of all, Paul talks about the importance not of being highly gifted and able, but he talks about being completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, without pushing the analogy too far, I would suggest that this is the oil that, needs, that is needed to ensure that the engine is running smoothly. And without this oil, it will seize up. 
and have all sorts of problems. I'll come back to this verse right at the end, but I just want to signal that this is something that we don't want to move on from too readily. Now, talking about the power of one is not a novel idea. It's uh, well-established. You will hear it frequently from uh, coaches insulting a team, that if you're to work well as a team, you've got to work as one. You've got to be single-minded. You've got to be working together and have the goal. And uh, so we see it, whether it's sport or whether it's in politics or whether it's um, a whole manner of different contexts. And so it was in the ancient world. We have texts that talk about how if a city wants to prove itself as a superior city to the city down the road, the way to do it is to be, uh, to be like-minded, to actually be as one, think as one, move as one, and that's how you would advance. And Paul says, well, that's also true for the gospel. But the point is that this oneness is not something we have to manufacture, It's not something that we can contrive by some governance policy or some mechanism. It's an attitude and it's also a truth that we are given. The oneness for God's people is an incredible strength. And just to make the point, Paul uh, lays it on thick. He says this oneness, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is an incredible oneness that we have received are uh, entrusted with. Despite this incredible richness of oneness, the stream that, that uh, has called us together and holds us together, that inspires us, as a church whether it's local churches or whether it's national churches or different denominations, we have a remarkable capacity to destroy that oneness and to create extraordinary disunity. And it is dishonouring God to do so. So Paul says we need to strive to grow in this oneness. There's a whole sermon in that one, but I'm going to move on. Paul then moves to a passage that's a bit obscure and I'm not going to explain the background before it because it involved going into a Syriac variation of a psalm that Paul knew apparently. No one else did. Well, maybe they did. Paul's point, however, is clear. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace is where God has touched our life, has enriched our life, has been given to us so that we might then be a means of grace for others. The means of grace is that we become instruments, vessels of God's grace that can touch other people's lives. There's an experience that Fiona and I had um, involving St Matthews a number of years ago that really stays with us very strongly. And those of you who know our son John will know what we're talking about. Um, And it's a very personal example, but I think you'll know the point. Uh, for those of you who don't know John, John has an intellectual disability um, and uh, he's very much John, he's one of a kind. When we left St Matthews in 2008, we had some lovely farewell events and we really appreciate it. We've been here for 13 years uh, and it's been some of the best ministry of our life um, has been through St Matthews. And Fiona and I will recall the number of times that people said, we'll miss you. 
we will really miss John. <laughs> and people meant it because John's very presence touches people's lives. We had a number of widows who said that John's hug over the greeting of peace was the highlight of their week. Said so many, so few people actually touch us and embrace us like that. Um, each one of us has the capacity to bring that grace of God and enrich those around us without exception. And that's actually very countercultural because our own society has a sense of worthiness. Well, those who, are, who succeed, those who are powerful, those who are impressive, those who are popular, they're the ones we regard as more worthy. The gospel says, no, you're overlooking so many means of grace who touch and enrich our lives. So what does this text mean that Paul talks about? And uh, the background for it is a text that was used of a victorious um, person in, in battle. He climbed a high mountain. He's been victorious in battle, captured the enemy and seized the booty and handed the booty out to the troops, to his people. And it's used in a religious sense. And Paul says, well, who is it who's actually ascended um, at this mountain? It was no less than the one who climbed down. That is to say, Jesus, who came down into the world, won the battle on the cross against all that was dark and evil and horrid, and then ascended in his resurrection and ascension thereafter. So he uses that image to say this victorious Jesus who has triumphed over all the powers that were thrown at him has now distributed gifts to his people. And they aren't gifts just to be enjoyed and say, oh, this is terrific, I can enjoy this box of chocolates or whatever it is. The gifts are given that we would put them into use. They are to be exercised for the benefit of a wider sense. Now, the first gifts uh, he gave, and this um, are familiar words, and I'm going to be disciplined and not trying to unpack all of them. I got caught up in the 8.30 and took too long. So I should do this discipline. Uh, he, Christ gave the gifts that he's given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There are public ministers who have been given responsibilities since the time of Christ to have various leadership roles within the church. Note, by the way, it isn't just office holders. It is those who are self-evident having the gifts that Christ has given them who exercise those roles within the church. Pastors and teachers are joined together because you cannot be a good pastor unless you can bring the wisdom of God to bear on whatever you are drawn into. And you'll be a hopeless teacher if you are unaware of the needs and the realities and the experiences of all of us. The two must come together to be affected. Why? It's for the equipping of the saints. That is to say, all of us. Saints are simply those that God has called to be part of his people, his family, his workforce, if you like. For the work of service and for the building up of the body of Christ. How do we get to experience these various gifts and ministries? Well, we won't do it in isolation. Sometimes I hear people saying, I don't need to come to church. I can worship God on a surfboard or I can worship God on a mountaintop or in a, 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 in a, uh, a walk of some description. Now, that's true, 
but you won't experience the benefits of the body, the gifts and the ministries that we all bring into that space. You are, we are missing out on so much when we can't have that human interaction and connection with the church, with the body of Christ. And this has a purpose. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We need to continue to grow. If we're not growing, then we are falling behind. We don't cease growing spiritually no matter how old that we get. The measure of a good learning process is to become aware, increasingly aware of how much we don't know. For every question we might begin to explore an answer to, another five questions emerge. There are occasions when I'm so full of questions and so few answers, or I'm making so many mistakes, I'm doing an awful lot of learning because that's actually how we are learning. In fact, one writer says that unless we are um, making mistakes, then we're not trying because we only will make mistakes when we push ourselves, extend ourselves, and that's actually very true for us as a church. So we will then no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Now this was certainly true in the first century. You go into any marketplace or forum, there were people all around trying to grab their attention. Um, follow this person, follow this teaching, buy this, these products, um, listen to us, don't listen to them. That was all around them in the marketplace. That has been taken to a whole new art form in the Western culture in the last 30 or 40 years. We have talkback radio where if you ask yourself, does anyone have an opinion on things? There's a lot of people with an awful lot of opinions that are coming at us in all directions. It gets overwhelming. Add social media into that where everyone can add their own two cents worth into the mix and it's just a sea of opinions and things floating around. How can we find some solid ground to navigate that? Well, that's where we go back to the passage from last week. We put down deep roots. We find that stability in that spiritual ecosystem where we are holding each other into check and sometimes it's simple as asking the question, hmm, not so sure about that. Have you thought about thinking about it this way? And not just accepting all these tidal ways. I had to chuckle when I read that line, we'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Sounds an awful lot like a lot of the culture wars we've been having in the last recent times. Not to mention election periods, but I won't go into that one. I'm too much of a diplomat at St Matthew's. The answer we get, the peace we get, is the insurance. We need to grow up and not just allow ourselves to be in that space where we don't ask those critical questions. We don't explore and ask, where's this coming from? Why should I have uh, listened to this voice and why should I be concerned about others? God has given us that capacity and the way we do it as a community is even stronger. So that's part of what we seek to do when we gather together as a church. Then we come to a verse that I have to confess 
to my shame that I actually have a love-hate relationship with this verse. Speaking the truth in love. Now, it is such a good and important verse. We do need to speak the truth in love, although I'm going to come back and revisit that word speaking in a moment. But when I hear someone start a sentence saying, look, you know, I'm sorry, but I've just got to speak the truth in love and tell it as it is. And we cringe, draw a deep breath and saying, what's coming next? Because what comes next often sounds pretty unloving and pretty hurtful and often fairly judgmental and uh, insensitive as well. It's often used to justify all sorts of blunt and careless and, and harmful speech. So what does it mean to speak the truth in love? I came across this quote that really uh, summed it up beautifully. My goal, this uh, person, Shame uh, Chiborn, I hadn't heard of him. I'd got a Google search. He's an American writer and activist. He says, my goal, and I'm pretty sure this is the same for all of us, is to speak the truth in love. There are a lot of people speaking the truth with no love. And there are a lot of people speaking about talking about love without much truth. The importance is actually holding the two together. I know myself, I will hear and listen to someone if what is expressed comes out of a relationship when I know that they are genuinely wanting to help and to support and to encourage. I will listen to those voices a lot more than those who just want to prove how I've got it wrong yet again or I've had another failure or whatever else. We just don't hear, tend to hear that. So surrounding things in those relationships where we actually know people's uh, goodwill and support and care in how they may want to express things, that can take us into that space. But last night when I was sitting with this and thinking through what does it actually mean to speak the truth in love, I looked a little more closely and discovered that the word speaking is actually not in the verse. Um, it's actually... For those who are grammatically minded, it's a participle. Um, it's actually talking more about being truthful through the instrument of love, being truthful in and through love. In fact, a good translation would even be living truthfully in and through love. And I'm beginning to hear that verse of Paul's in a quite different way. It talks about integrity. It talks about demonstrating it <coughs> and being true to it rather than just being uh, full of our opinions and having a, a sense of calling people to be corrected. It's very often the case that um, those who believe they've got the ministry of giving feedback in the church usually haven't. And those who don't think they have the gift of giving helpful feedback are usually the ones who do. Listen to those who very rarely speak and contribute. Just saying. So the goal is speaking the truth, living the truth in love and this is how we will grow up into all aspects of him who is the head, even Christ. Now I had a cartoon many years ago that I used when I was a youth worker and I uh, haven't found an equivalent so this is a sketch. You won't see it unless you're up in the front row. So next week by the way I won't expecting more people to be at the front row just so you can actually see the screen. Um, but what this body is made up of a whole lot of little figures and bodies all trying to cluster together, you know, those human pyramids trying to hold together. It's an art form in Spain and various parts. They managed to build these amazing human pyramids. 
And this is a whole body that makes up the body of Christ. And together we can be functioning as effective members. The problem is that all those little bodies that make up the body of Christ aren't all uniform. We don't all fit neatly together. We have different experiences and backgrounds and personalities and tastes and opinions and agendas and things that we feel passionate about. So holding all that body together with the gifts that come with it is a challenge. So this is where I want to end, where I started. How do we bring those various different energies and lives and gifts together? It is the attitudes we bring to it. Being completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility is often spoken of, less practiced, but it's not just about not getting a big head and thinking too much of yourself. Australian culture is pretty good at keeping people humble. If people are tall poppies, we have a habit of just bringing them down to size. That's what families are for. That's what friends are for. (laughs) But that's actually not what Paul was talking about. In the first century, to be humble was to be humiliated. It actually is to enter a space in which you are not highly regarded. And people might regard you as a bit of a nothing. Or you might be regarded as someone who has, uh, um, is to be avoided or as an embarrassment. And Paul says that is the Christian way. Behind it is that willingness to set aside a social value system. That is a way of saying these people are valuable because they are successful, because they are well regarded and they are popular and they've got 10 billion people who like them on Facebook or Twitter or whatever else. And others over here, well, they're just someone who just aren't regarded as much. That is a social value system that is totally artificial. It's usually contrived by the elite who want to keep themselves in that place and use a measuring system. It depends on your income. It depends on how many cars you have in your garage or all those different types of things. The Christian way is to set aside that value system saying, I have all that I need and all that I am from Christ. I don't need to put all my time and energy to prove myself to anyone. What I can do is focus on the other person. That is true humility. Being willing to put other people's interests and needs before our own. It's taking a delight and seeing the growth of others and for them to receive more of the spotlight and to begin to thrive and to grow in that space. And gentleness. Um, I wish they didn't have the word gentle for the translation here. Not that I don't like the word gentle. It's a wonderful word and it is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It means sweet reason. The word here actually is meek. But meekness is dropped out of our lexicon. We don't tend to use it so much because we think meekness is weak. It's some, being some sort of doormat. It's being curled up in a corner somewhere and saying... Um, what's the definition of it is you know uh, the meek shall inherit the earth if that's all right with you is the the phrase that's often used to try and but actually that's not meekness the word that is used here by Paul was the word that could be used of a powerful stallion a horse that has power and strength that is perfectly well disciplined it's under it's a exercise that in a controlled way meekness is the opposite of a tyrant Tyrant is someone who has power and lashes out and all sorts of people have to go running. Meekness is the opposite. Someone who has that strength 
but exercises it in a healthy way. It's focused on the other person. It's not all about them. Paul says these are the qualities that are to be true of God's people because we see the ultimate example of exactly this in the person of Jesus. Our growth is to be growing into becoming Christ-shaped, like-minded in terms of our attitude, our outlook, our sense of worth, our sense of who we are within God's world. Of all the things that we've heard, I think this is the challenge for us to focus on as we continue to grow in this new season in our life at St Matthew's. Let us be humble. Let us be gentle with one another. Let us be putting other people's needs before our own, listening before we speak and seeking what can we do as a body to be as healthy and as uh, um, growing into that maturity that is our given in Christ. Amen.